Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining us today. Today we're going to talk about discovery, pretrials, trials and appeals in the New Jersey workers' compensation system. I'm going to talk a little bit about discovery and what discovery is allowable under the court rules. I'm going to talk about the pretrial process and hearing cycles, trial sequencing, and then I'm going to talk about why and when an appeal should be taken and, of course, when it shouldn't be taken as well. So before we jump in, just a little bit about our firm. Our mission at Lois Law Firm is to take control and stay in control of the Jersey case. You know, in New Jersey, you have this awesome opportunity to control and direct medical care, and we want to make sure we don't squander that and we want to stay on top of these cases. Uh, if you're joining me today, uh, it's because you're a member of our webinar community, but I also want to point out there's some other ways to learn uh, that uh, maybe will be useful for you as well. First, we put out a New Jersey workers' compensation handbook, and it's really intended for claims professionals and adjusters and even attorneys uh, to get an overview of the workers' compensation system in New Jersey. And if you want a copy of that handbook, it's at loislc.com forward slash publications. Um, we also have a podcast that we produce each month. We actually produce five podcasts a month on different topics in workers' compensation law. So jump into those. If you can't make a webinar, um, sometimes the audio recording is just a great way to keep up. Uh, so you can jump into those podcasts and those are available on loislc.com forward slash podcasts or really anywhere uh, that you can download podcasts from, like Spotify or iTunes. Um, if you're interested in next level stuff and you're saying, hey, Greg, I'm, I've got a real hunger and interest uh, to learn more about workers' compensation law uh, in general, check out my partner Christian Cisan's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. Uh, guess what? It's released on the third Friday of every month, and it really is like a 201 level um, podcast that really talks about uh, some of the big issues in workers' compensation. He has really interesting discussions. He usually has guests on his show, and it's a lot of fun. So that's also available at loislc.com forward slash podcasts or any place that uh, you can download podcasts from. So those are just some other ways to learn. Um, today's class, uh, my goal is to introduce you to this topic. I'm presuming you have some familiarity with workers' compensation law because you've been coming to our webinars so far. Um, but my intention is really to explain this in a way that someone who has no, no knowledge of how the workers' compensation system in New Jersey works uh, really would get a good overview. All right, let's start with discovery uh, in New Jersey. And let's talk about the discovery types that are available. First, the rule does allow for some pretty awesome discovery in most cases in New Jersey. Uh, we can serve a demand for medical information on our adversary. And that's a request that they provide us with medical records for any and all treatment that's been unauthorized, meaning not specifically provided by the workers' compensation carrier or employer. In many classes of cases, we can also serve interrogatories on our adversary. Uh, those are written questions that the petitioner has to respond to in the New Jersey workers' compensation case. Interrogatories are available in cases involving occupational exposure, repetitive use, cumulative trauma, uh, death dependency cases, uh, and they can also be requested by motion in any other case type. Uh, the other thing we can do in New Jersey, which is very useful, is uh, once we filed an answer in a New Jersey workers' compensation case, we are then entitled to search the entire docket um, statewide. And so we can see if the petitioner has filed any prior workers' compensation cases and we'll have access to them. Uh, as well, including all of the pleadings, any medicals that have been filed with the state, et cetera. So that's really useful sir, to uh, investigate 
the petitioner's claims history. Um, and in certain case types uh, where the claimant is claiming that they are totally disabled, you can also demand that the claimant execute uh, a demand, uh, uh, sorry, execute a certification uh, that lists all of their pre-existing conditions, which is very useful in a total disability case where you might be trying to get contribution from the New Jersey Second Injury Fund. Now, there are some other discovery techniques that are not specifically authorized by the rules. Those are things like asking Social Security to provide us with either claim information or earnings histories for the petitioner. We serve every single claimant with a Medicare eligibility affidavit so that we can help you comply with your Medicare as secondary payer obligations. Um, we can do that prior claim search, search electronically on courts online, but we also recommend that clients obtain a Claims Index Bureau ISO search for every case that we're defending. Uh, we also have subpoena power in New Jersey. Uh, we have the same subpoena power that you would have in a civil action. Uh, so that means that uh, we can command either the production of documents or the production of testimony if necessary. We can also do depositions in New Jersey. Um, it's very rare that it's allowed. Uh, depositions are only allowed with uh, judicial approval. And really, they're only allowed where the witness is either going to be unavailable due to death or illness uh, or is otherwise unavailable. So they're really rarely done. Uh, in most of our routine cases, we're also issuing HIPAA releases so that we can obtain records usually relating to prior claims. And in New Jersey, you can do unlimited numbers of independent medical examinations and functional capacity evaluations. Now, where the parties are not complying with our discovery requests, very common, particularly in the occupational exposure, cumulative trauma, or um, uh, repetitive use injury cases where they're not compliant, uh, you have the opportunity to file a motion to compel production of discovery. And those motions are pretty routinely granted. Uh, according to the court rule, all discovery has to be concluded or finished in a New Jersey workers' compensation case within 180 days uh, from the filing of our answer. So don't forget that that uh, timeline is running. Uh, our our um, sort of best practice is when a case is referred to us, we're going to serve all discovery demands available on every claimant immediately. Um, a little bit about how the court docket is organized is useful to understand in this state. Um, New Jersey has this interesting thing called a pretrial, uh, which is the primary avenue for which the parties are going to meet in court. And the court cases will be listed for many, many, many pretrial conferences during the course of the uh, litigation. Um, you know, it's, it's a frustrating situation because these pretrial conferences typically amount to almost nothing as the parties are merely checking in with the judge uh, and because petitioner's counsel are able to get adjournments for basically any reason that they can come up with. Um, but the court is organized, and I'm sorry, I should say the court system is organized around the concept of a hearing cycle. So what's a hearing cycle? It means that every court um, calendar is has basically a 21-day hearing cycle divided into three weeks of five days each. Today is June 26th, and it is the third week of that court hearing cycle and the first day of that week. So we call that uh, the 3-1 day in our sort of local lingo. A case that's gonna be adjourned uh, by, let's say our adversary's not ready, they don't have their medical report together or something like that, and they say, judge, I need an adjournment. 
the judge says, okay, I'm going to grant it one cycle adjournment. One cycle from today is three weeks from June 26th, which is July 17th. So that's the day the case will next be listed. And I wish I could tell you that the courts keep a tight rein on cases and don't let them be adjourned far out into the future. But the truth is adjournments of five, six, eight cycles, right? That's, that's not uncommon uh, in our system. It leads to a lot of frustration because of the, the way the court's uh, calendar is organized. Uh, for our clients because, hey, these things are going to get adjourned and they're going to be pushed out pretty far into the future sometimes. Um, it also means that each defense firm, and we're one of them, uh, is assigned specific court days and specific court calendars in all of the 15 hearing points. So here's our actual calendar at Lois Law Firm, um, showing you the days and times and judges and when we appear. We have five uh, full-time attorneys who do nothing but New Jersey workers' compensation defense, and we've organized our, ourselves around this court calendar. Um, because judges are typically adjourning cases far into the future, uh, the court is pub publishes both a date calculator in a paper format as well as online. And there's a system called the Oscar calculation system that the workers' compensation court has uh, published and made available for free. Uh, which provides a date calculator. So that's what everyone's using. So when you are dealing with counsel and they're saying, oh, the case got adjourned five cycles by the judge of compensation. Well, you know, five cycles is five times three weeks, so 15 weeks. So that's a little under four months. Uh, and that's the kind of um, lingo and the sort of docket management that you might hear from your counsel. Obviously, it's in our interest to keep cases moving quickly. I want to keep a tight rein on my cases. I do not like long adjournments. We can object to long adjournments, but unfortunately, uh, the judges are not going to be very welcoming to that. So even we, though we object, really, this is up to the judge to adjourn cases. Now, there are some advantages to this as well. Um, well, there's a lot of predict predictability, right? You know when your case is next going to be listed. And so if there is something that needs to be done in the interim, uh, the parties need to secure reports or find a witness or produce a document. Well, you know exactly when that's going to be due. So that's really a, a very good thing for predictability. Also, because each defense counsel has a specific day listed in each court, uh, it's really easy for us to contact the judge and communicate with the judge and say, hey, judge, we've reached a settlement in our case. Can you do what we call an add-on? Can you add this on to a court calendar so that we can just come into court quickly and settle this matter? And because of that predictability, it's really easy to do that. Now, nearly all the courts are virtual in New Jersey. There's 15 workers' compensation courts at this point in June of 2023. Um, only two are requiring, two courthouses are requiring um, in-person appearances, and it is very much by judge. Um, very, It's very judge by judge whether they want in-person or virtual appearances. Obviously, we're very happy with virtual appearances because it saves our clients money. Um, you're not paying for us to go back and forth to court, so you know we do uh, think that's useful. Um, you could always present testimony virtually, including doctors in the workers' compensation system in New Jersey. Uh, that's a big change from how it used to be, where everyone used to have to come to court. Um, you can request in a case, even if the judge is saying, I want to have this case uh, heard in person, uh, but to save time and expense, um, you can say, judge, can I have my doctors um, or my medical experts testify uh, over the uh, over WebEx or Teams or Ring Central or Zoom or any of the other systems. And when I say that because there is no uniformity throughout the system, each judge is using a different video conferencing system. So we've got to keep track of all of that. 
we believe that the best practice for managing the docket is to try to get some progress at every single one of these pretrial conferences. If you're working with us, you'll see that two weeks before the listing, our paralegal is preparing um, and getting that case ready for that pretrial conference. We're going to send you an email saying, here's what's coming up. The case is listed before judge so-and-so and so-and-so date, and here's the outcome we're going to try to achieve. And our paralegal will be putting the case together, contacting opposing parties, seeing if they're ready. You know, I think that's just best practice uh, for everyone um, to get ready for these pretrial conferences. One week before the listing, uh, our attorney will reach out to our client, say, here's what's going to happen next week at this listing. Here's what we need to get done. Um, maybe we're asking for settlement authority. Maybe we're asking to be allowed to try the case, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, so we're reaching out to them. And then immediately after a pretrial conference, because these are really the milestones in these cases, you know, after a pretrial conference has happened, that's the big milestone that we want to focus on. So the day after, we're going to let you know exactly what happened in that pre-hearing. Um, a case will typically be listed for many pretrial conferences during the lifetime of the average claim. It's simply a meeting of all the parties. Um, there is no real standard for the way these are handled. Different judges do it in different ways. But really the goal is to identify whatever's outstanding in the case, whatever's missing, um, so that the um, judge can direct the parties informally, of course, because there is no official direction. You're not going to see an order coming out of the pretrial conference. Um, in the old days when everything was done in person, and when I say the old days, I mean March of 2020, everything was in person. There was no virtual at all. Um, these informal conferences were where most workers' compensation cases were resolved. That's really where we did the compromising and the settlement and the negotiation. Nowadays, that's predominantly done over the phone, talking with our adversary. Um, after uh, a pretrial conference, and there'll typically be some input from the judge, but remember, this is informal. Uh, you know, the parties will go back and work on whatever's missing or whatever the issues are, or they'll begin settlement negotiations or continue settlement negotiations or do whatever's needed to do to move that case to closure. But sometimes you can't reach closure. Sometimes you can't compromise. Sometimes there is no settlement that can be reached. And so the next step in a case is to move from a pretrial conference to a trial. And this brings me to the last point, which is the only formal result that can happen in a pretrial conference is the issuance and signing of a pretrial memorandum, which we used to call the green sheet. Um, now, the green sheet is the document that the parties agree to that ready the case for trial. It's the parties listing out who all their witnesses are going to be, what the stipulations are going to be, who the experts that are going to be called, all of the components of a typical litigated trial proceeding. Um, the, the Division of Workers' Compensation has issued a form for this pretrial memorandum to be executed on. It used to be on green paper, and that's why we call it the green sheet. We have to disclose on that green sheet if we're going to present covert surveillance testimony uh, or uh, any type of investigation materials have to be um, revealed on that pretrial memorandum. Our policy here is that every single pretrial memorandum, we reserve the right to present covert surveillance. Um, the parties um, uh, list all their witnesses and the documents they intend to use. Um, the judge also is supposed to weigh in on this pretrial memorandum and is required to sign it and put their recommendation for resolution. So, you know, if you go to court and our position is the case is worth 25% of the hand and our adversary's demand is 75% of the hand, 
if the judge believes that the case should be settled at 50% of the hand, they should put that down on that green sheet. And that's really useful for you as a client or as a risk professional, because uh, you really wanna know what the judge thinks? Well, pre-try the case, put it on the pre-trial memorandum, and the judge will be required when they sign it uh, to put down their overall opinion as to how the case should be resolved. So this is a really good tool and an important tool for bringing the parties together and really fleshing out the issues in a case. Every green sheet, we always put the exact same sentence that says, quote, the respondent reserves the right to provide testimony or documentary evidence to refute the claims of the petitioner and or establish commission of fraud as defined by the statute and specifically reserves the right to obtain and or produce such evidence after the petitioner testifies as per case law. And the reason we put that on every green sheet is because there is some um, case law which suggests that if we do not reveal or raise fraud before the uh, claimant testifies, we might be stopped from being able to present um, after acquired video or testamentary evidence afterwards. So that's something we always wanna do. On every green sheet, we also reserve the right to present employer witnesses to rebut or refute the claims of the petitioner. Uh, we generally don't list their names and we do this protectively so that should they say something outlandish during testimony, we have the right to bring rebuttal witnesses. Now, the sequence of a trial is sort of important to understand because it moves slowly and then quickly. So this is pretty interesting. Or sorry, I should say it moves quickly and then slowly. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. The first step in the trial is that the petitioner gets on the stand and testifies. Uh, this happens quickly because, I mean, it's as easy as calling up the petitioner at home and saying, hi, appear on this Zoom call at this time. You're going to testify before the judge. It's pretty cheap, pretty uh, cost effective. And generally, after the petitioners testified and the parties had an opportunity to sort of weigh the credibility of the petitioner, listen to their complaints and consider what the impact of the alleged injury is on their activities of daily living, we're able to reach a settlement. Um, after the petitioner testifies, we're allowed to bring our employer witnesses. We generally don't do this unless there is a need to rebut something specifically said by the petitioner, usually about mechanism of injury. Again, that happens pretty quickly. It could happen the same day as the petitioner testifies, and it's pretty cheap to do. The next step is where the case trial sequence slows down. These are non-sequential trials. So what happens is the petitioner testifies, and the judge closes the record and says, okay, we're all going to come back in six weeks, and we're going to do the uh, medical experts for both sides uh, or for one side. So there, the case slows down at that moment after the petitioner testifies because now petitioner's attorney needs to organize their medical witness and bring them into court. So that really slows down the case. There's a limit to how much the medical witness can be paid. It's $600 currently under the statute. Uh, and so there is a small cost associated with it. After the IME doctor is testifying, the rule allows us to bring in the treating doctor. That's gonna be really hard to do because this is not a medical expert. This isn't someone who testifies for a living and the medical doctor um, is, is gonna be harder to schedule. So that's gonna slow things down as well. And then usually the last step in a typical trial sequence is we bring in our expert physician. And again, this is very costly and it's gonna take several weeks. So you can see as you go through this sort of trial sequence, you can see it starts off quick and we get a lot of information and then the proceedings slow down dramatically while the parties bring in their medical witnesses. And that's good actually for reaching compromise or settlement. You get a chance to really weigh or test to the credibility of the claimant to sort of explore their case a little bit, make them uh, put their case on. 
and then you always have that opportunity to go forward and try to settle. So what happens after a trial that doesn't go our way? I want to talk just briefly about what happens post-judgment. Uh, and what can happen post-judgment is an appeal. But I want to talk about what we can appeal. First, any final decision can be appealed. Uh, what do I mean by final decision? Anything that's on an order, anything where the judge is commanding us to do something, usually it's payment of money, sometimes it's provenance of medical treatment. Both of those things can be appealed. So if you lose a motion for med and temp in New Jersey, just be mindful, you can appeal that. But we can't appeal things that we consent to. And that's why you'll sometimes see a judge entering an order in a case and asking the parties to sign it. And we won't sign it. We'll say, well, we've read this, but I'm not consenting to this uh, order that you've issued, judge. And we'll do that on purpose so that we're re um, preserving our right to bring an appeal in that case. Um, now, the new appellate rules, which came out in 2018, now require that in order to file an appellate brief, you have to point to the specific places in the record where you raised your objections. So it's very important during the trial proceedings to raise objections and to state them clearly on the record so that you can um, bring them later. Now, I do want to talk briefly about my experience. I've been handling New Jersey workers' compensation cases since 2001. My first job was as the uh, law clerk to the Division of Workers' Compensation in New Jersey. I've been doing this for 22 years, uh, almost 23 years. And um, in all of those years, I've appealed many, many cases. But I want to just be very clear that appeals in this jurisdiction statistically do not, um, are, are rarely granted and rarely will the judge be reversed. Um, and there's some specific reasons in this jurisdiction um, for that to happen. But appeals should be used sparingly. They're very costly and they're unlikely to succeed. Now, some things uh, cannot be appealed. If you do a section 20 in your case, that's an order approving settlement with dismissal, or you do a section 22 settlement, which is an order approving settlement, those cannot be appealed because you've consented to a settlement, right? You've waived your right to appeal that. A judicial order where the judge calls a case and says, okay, you, Greg, you said it's 25% of the hand. Uh, the petitioner's attorney argues it's 75% of the hand, and I'm going to make my judgment be 50% of the hand, that can be appealed. Anything the judge is ordering can be appealed. So you don't have to consent. You don't have to settle in this jurisdiction. Um, here's a just a brief slide that gives sort of an overview of whether or not the case can be appealed, can it be reopened, and can it be commuted. And just a quick thing, commutation in New Jersey, also incredibly rare. Because there's no automatic stay in this, in this jurisdiction, you should only file appeals in this jurisdiction where you're actually intending to try to get the strategic win. Um, appeals are not that useful as tools to leverage for settlement. In other jurisdictions where you get, for example, an automatic stay, appeals might be tactical. You might file an appeal uh, not because ultimately you may prevail. Um, you're filing that appeal because you're getting a tactical advantage by doing so. There are no tactical advantages. It takes approximately 18 months for appeal to be decided. You're unlikely to be granted a, a stay. So really should be very thoughtful before appealing in this jurisdiction. And that's because A, you have a low probability of actually getting a reversal and B, there's also a chance you can create some negative precedent. So just be mindful of that. The first level of appeal from the Division of Workers' Compensation is straight to the appellate division of the Superior Court. So you're going immediately into a law court and that's why the costs are so much higher. 
All right, some takeaways from our conversation today. Um, New Jersey is a unique state in that there is a lot of discovery opportunity in this state. Use it to investigate and test adversaries case. I believe that most of our work, most of our preparation should be done well in advance of those pretrial conferences. You shouldn't be surprised about what happens at a pretrial conference. These are pretty straightforward events. Trials themselves are non-continuous. There's nothing scary about a trial in this uh, state because of the trial sequencing and the slowness of it. It's an opportunity to settle. And finally, appeals are rare and slow. So really on, uh, deploy an appeal only when you have a strategic goal in mind. All right, so that's a little uh, about our uh, uh, discovery trials, hearings, and appeals in New Jersey. Thanks for joining me today, everybody. I hope everyone has a great day and a great rest of your week.